This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Ageist and your host on the Super Age show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, save 20% on all their products. This show is also brought to you by Element, L-M-N-T, my favorite electrolyte mix. It's what I put in my water in the morning, and it's what I put in my water at the gym. Go to drinkelement.com slash ageist and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Today's show is also brought to you by Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure, the first clinically tested urolithin A supplement, which is showing tremendous results for mitochondrial health. Go to TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist, use the code Ageist at checkout, and save 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Welcome to episode 134 of the Super Age Podcast. It's great to have you with us. This will be dropping on May 17th, 2023. This week, I had the honor and the privilege to be on a panel discussion um, for a group interested in wellness and longevity with a bunch of folks who were, you know, had the word doctor in front of their name. So that was great. It was quite an honor. And I, I learned a lot. And, you know, part of the discussion was, of course, you know, what are the things that people need to do um, to increase their wellness, their um, their longevity and really, you know, their quality of life. And, and pretty much everybody in the room was, I would say, over 45. Um, people were very well informed. And, you know, the question came to what does one eat? Because, you know, as we talk a lot about here, there's sort of the, the four big rocks that we look at there's sleep, there's nutrition, there's exercise, movement, and how you're dealing with your stress. So when it comes to food, you know, as I've said oftentimes on this podcast, I, I don't like to get into the minutia of it too much because it, you know, it just becomes essentially religious. Uh, but there are, there, are, there are certain things that really are true that we need to pay attention to. And yes, um, eating more plants is a good thing. Probably making sure you get enough protein, that's, that's a very good thing. However, I would say the number one thing, the thing that makes me most crazy is this, you know, high glycemic load diet. What I mean by that is foods that are going to spike your blood sugar level. And, and why does this upset me? It, it upsets me tremendously. It saddens me because there are something like and this was this was done in 2015 so it's this number's bigger now 100 million americans either have diabetes or prediabetes think about that 100 million this is entirely preventable 33% of people over 65 have full blown diabetes i mean it's just it's just tragic it's just so sad and so preventable Diabetes used to be quite a rare disease, you know, like one in a thousand people or something like that, one in 5,000 people. And now it's, you know, basically a third of the population. 
um, has diabetes or prediabetes. So um, that's why we've got on the show today, Kara Collier. And, and Kara started a company called NutriSense. I have no business relationship with NutriSense. I'm having Kara on the show because I feel really strongly about this blood sugar issue, which is related to metabolic health. And metabolic health is really related to the rest of your health. And as we will talk about, the consequences of having high blood sugar, uh, and high blood sugar is caused really by basically one thing, eating a high glycemic diet. And, you know, there are other components to it, sure. Exercise is a component, um, you know, uh, loss of muscle mass, uh, also a small component. The main thing is, what are we putting in our mouths? And we are 100% in control of this. This is not an act of God. This is not something you're genetically predisposed. No. Um, you know, when I see people leaving Starbucks with these, you know, giant 24-ounce double mocha latte lappuccino, whatever they are, that is just going to send their blood sugar through the roof, um, I, it saddens me. Um, because I know what the consequences of that are, because I, I'm assuming that person doesn't do that just like once every few years. I'm guessing that's their daily habit, and there are health consequences to that. And you know, we also get we you know we get mail. Okay, so sometimes we get sort of I won't call it hate mail, but mail that's suggestive of maybe you want to try something else. And and sometimes this mail goes along the lines of like, well. In fact, I think I got one last week. I think it was on somebody sent us something on social, like, why don't you just chill out and eat some pastries? And and I think, well, you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is I do eat pastry maybe like once or twice a year, you know, I don't know. And I generally regret it like, you know, an hour later because I'm, for better or worse, very sensitive to sugar and I get like a headache and I get kind of nauseous and ugh, it just doesn't work for me. But, you know, in spite of that, I'll still do it once or twice a year. I will have, you know, I've meant like a celebration at somebody's birthday or something and I've had dinner. I'll, you know, I'll have a little piece of cake. It's okay. Um, you know, how often do I do that? Again, like twice a year. Um, th that's hopefully not going to land me in the land of, you know, metabolic dysfunction. I, I don't think it will. Um, but doing this thing, this sort of thing regularly is a real problem. It's, it, it just causes a lot of the diseases that kill people. And if we, if we, if you look at the top four ways people die, so that's number one is heart conditions, um, you know, diseases of the circulation. Um, number two is cancer. Number three is diseases of the brain, Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that. And number four is diabetes. However, this high glycemic load, this spiking your blood sugar is going to be a contributor to all of those. So um, I'm hoping that all of you um, will perhaps aid some of my rant here and stay away from this. And by the way, my most hated beverage on the planet, which I think the FDA should label as a controlled substance is Mountain Dew. And I think that stuff is just poisonous. You're probably better off with turpentine. You have like, well, I don't know about that. Don't drink any turpentine, but you know what I mean? Bad stuff. So we're going to get with Kara Collier and we're going to get into exactly 
what all this is about, what blood sugar uh, spikes do, her background as a clinician, and then, you know, how to pay attention to um, eating the right food so that these bad things don't happen to us. We're going to meet with Kara in just a second after a quick word from our sponsor. The first sponsor of today's show is Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure. We all know how important mitochondrial energy is, and especially maintaining muscle and strength as we age. Urolithin A, which is found in MitoPure, has been clinically proven to increase muscle strength and endurance with no other changes in lifestyle. Urolithin A is essentially upgrading your body's cellular power grid, giving your body the energy it needs to optimize. I've been using MitoPure for a few months now, and what I can tell you is there is a noticeable change in the way my muscles re-energize after I use them. What that means is, say I'm involved in some intense activity in the gym or maybe some sporting activity. Normally, the next time I did it, my I would be you know kind of tired. I, I would be sort of gassed out. That doesn't seem to happen with this. Um, and all I can imagine is because my mitochondrial grid has essentially been upgraded. It's not just my muscles that are getting upgraded. It's all the other cells in my body because they're all powered by mitochondria. Go to TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist. Use the code Ageist at checkout and save 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Today's show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, created by the experts from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. Inside Tracker uses the power of your body's biometric data to reveal to you what you need to live longer, healthier, and happier. I've been using Inside Tracker for a few years now, and it is the dashboard to my inner health. It's a critical part of my health and wellness routine. And since May is Women's Health Month, Inside Tracker is unveiling an upgraded ultimate plan that includes three new hormone markers that are critical to measure during a women's reproductive and menopausal years. For a limited time, our listeners can get up to 20% off Inside Tracker's new Ultimate Plan, complete with estradiol, progesterone, and TSH. With Inside Tracker, discovering what your body needs is no longer a guessing game. Visit insidetracker.com slash ageist, save 20%, and we'll leave that link in the show notes. We're going to get with Kara in just a second. Just a quick reminder after my conversation with Kara Collier, we're going to do that fun thing we do every week. Just try this. So hang out after the conversation for that. And right now, we're going to give Kara a call. Hey, Kara, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, David? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, it's not snowing and it's actually like 50 degrees here. So it's we're out of the ice age. Always nice to start to thaw out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I saw a bird today. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good day. Um, Kara, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I'm a registered dietitian by training. So I started my career in the hospitals working with sick patients. So primarily working in ICUs, critical care nutrition. Um, and many people, when I tell them that I worked in ICUs, expect to hear stories about gun or car accidents, trauma, but typically what you see in the ICUs actually are complications from lifestyle-related chronic conditions. So something like needing an urgent leg amputation because of uncontrolled diabetes or needing to be put on dialysis because of uncontrolled cardiovascular disease. Um, so these were the type of instances I was seeing over and over. And 
from that experience led some frustrations, you know, wishing that you could help people many decades sooner so that maybe they never had to end up there in the first place. Uh, and, and from that, you tried to make some changes from within the system and hit walls over and over working against the kind of traditional healthcare system. So decided to eventually jump ship and kind of go my own route in more of the entrepreneurship, uh, consumer wellness space to tackle some of those core issues. So uh, really became a bit of a metabolic health expert after working in the hospitals, um, went to a different startup, helped them launch, and then eventually co-founded NutriSense, where I lead our health team there. So um, over the past four years or so, I've seen now thousands of individuals' glucose data sets and really understand what brings core metabolic health and how we can prevent some of those issues I was seeing back in the beginning of my career. Uh, help us to understand this term metabolic health. What do you mean by that? Yeah, great question. Um, so I kind of describe the difference between metabolic health and glucose as thinking about it as our cellular engine, so to speak. So just like a car has an engine that interacts with many different components of the car to run it, we have a similar cellular engine, and that would be considered metabolic health a whole. It's really a set of various um, organs and hormones and processes that take in the energy that we're eating, breaking down any stored energy to then fuel the processes we need to live. That might be something like being able to go run a marathon, but also something like growing a new skin cell or new hair cell. So anything that is requiring energy, that metabolic health, metabolic system is what's fueling that. And then glucose is kind of like that primary fuel system for the metabolic engine. There are other fuel systems we can use, but glucose is really that preferred fuel source on a lot of these different processes. And is glucose what people are referring to when they say blood sugar? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we can kind of use those uh, interchangeably. Uh, most people will just say sugars or, you know, my sugar, uh, but glucose is kind of the technical term. Um, so what does like dysregulated metabolic health look like? Good question. Um, so when it gets dysregulated, it could from a variety of processes, it's multifactorial in that there's not one cause that causes that system to disrupt. And there's not one flagship sign that things are gone awry, but often, um, by tracking something either that reflects the status of our metabolic health. So things like glucose, insulin, um, lipids, blood pressure, and our body weight. But sometimes body composition is a little bit better because we know weight can fluctuate for various reasons. Those would all be signals that that engine, that cellular engine is starting to break down a little bit and not work quite as well. You you mentioned blood pressure. So is there's a relationship between like having high blood sugar and blood pressure? Yeah. So all of those things, all of those um, hallmark signs are typically related. Um, similarly to in diagnostic terms in the medical world, official diagnosis of metabolic syndrome, which means that your whole metabolic engine is really decompensated at this point, means that three of those five um, categories that I talked about outside of normal ranges. So um, blood pressure being one of them, glucose being another, 
So sometimes people will present with higher blood pressure as the first signal. And then if we keep going down that road, glucose will follow, or sometimes somebody presents with high glucose levels first. And if we keep going down that road, the blood pressure will follow. Uh, But typically they're pretty closely in line with each other. Yeah. I I had a guest on um, a few months ago, Rob Wolf, and we were talking about, um, you know, blood pressure being actually a blood sugar sort of issue, um, which, which I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, it's all related. And I think, especially in the medical world, we tend to try to piece all of these parts together. You know, we have our, um, cardiovascular unit in the hospital where we only deal with issues of the heart. And then we have our um, endocrinologist who only deals with issues of the hormones and that's where diabetes is. And we try to separate the body, but the truth is they're all so interconnected. You know, all the hormones are speaking to each other. It's this complex web of interrelated systems. And so it's not surprising that when you start to see um, one category that might seem different, hypertension. Um, it's actually very interconnected with our blood sugar. Um, so I think that this is kind of shifting in that mindset. We're hearing it more and more of people thinking a little bit more holistically, but traditionally we've really tried to separate the body systems, which it's not actually like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's not, I know <laughs> it's not. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a, uh, we are a system built up of organ systems. And they they all talk to each other. And and yeah, this idea that you can sort of pull one out. um, You know, I I understand why medical specialties exist um, because, you know, you you want a cardiologist like you don't want a podiatrist if you're talking about your heart. But, um, you know, the it's one of the things I'm really looking forward to, like AI and medicine to, to have this sort of like overarching um connection through this stuff which is like for a normal person is like super hard to exactly to yeah. yeah i not to divert us too much but a lot of people always ask me if we think adding technology into the medical world would be a bad thing a good thing and i think it will be a great thing because there are a lot of flaws of being a human that are expected like there's only so much we can remember all the different potential differential diagnostics that go with things. So usually it's like, you know, when this happens, the 80% likely outcome is that this was the problem that's causing it, but there's all these small potential problems instead. And it's hard for a human to remember all of that. That's where technology can feed you the different ideas and then the human can filter it through their clinical judgment to actually really improve outcomes. So I agree. I'm, I'm super optimistic about the energy. Um, so uh, speaking of technology, one of the things that I use, and I think you use a lot is a continuous glucose monitor, which is this thing that, um, everybody who's listening out there, it doesn't hurt. It looks super nasty, but it, um, it doesn't, you just sort of, I mean, in my case, I just plugged it in my arm. Um, and so, uh, continuous glucose monitor, but, um, tell us exactly it's measuring glucose levels in your blood, right? Continuously comes up on your phone. Yeah, exactly. So we'll use CGM for now for short. It's a little bit easier, but it's exactly what it sounds like. So instead of maybe the more traditional ways to monitor your glucose that people are probably familiar with, either pricking your finger with a glucose meter or getting your fasting glucose level or your average glucose with your hemoglobin A1C, instead, this is showing you a continual movie 
picture of your glucose. So when we look at just a snapshot with the traditional metrics, you're only seeing what's happening right then and there, which is helpful, but there's a lot more to the story. So when we put on a CGM and like you're mentioning, it's very painless. Nobody believes me when I say that, but it's, it's true. As you mentioned, there are a lot of people who say, well, I don't, I don't like needles, so I'm probably not going to do that, but, um, it, it really is completely painless. You, you put it on the back of your arm, you do it at home. I describe it as kind of like an easy button where it's like in a contraption that looks like an easy button and you just push the button and then it's there and it stays for two weeks straight. And so now for two full weeks, you can just scan over the device with your phone um, and it'll bring up the data on an app. And then you can see 24 seven, how your glucose is fluctuating. Um, if it's you know high or low or what's driving it to go in different directions And suddenly with that movie picture, you get a thousand more insights than what you get with just the snapshot in time. You know, a movie tells a thousand words and that's exactly true with something like a CGM as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, I want to get to where glucose goes in your body, but um, before we get there, this idea that uh, the linkage between inflammation and a word that gets thrown around here a lot called inflammaging um, and glucose. So what is like an excessive amount of glucose in my body? How does, give me the science on that. What, what, how is this causing inflammation? Yeah, great question. Um, we can think about glucose levels and, and really optimizing glucose levels in two categories. One is kind of what's happening in that fasted state, which we tend to try to capture with that fasted glucose level, but it does fluctuate in our fasted state and it also fluctuates day to day. So seeing how um, those values look over time is really insightful information about how your body is processing things when it's not being fed at, you know, energy from the outside. Um, And that gives us information on how well we're able to maintain homeostasis, essentially, because a lot of dysregulation can happen in that fasted state where maybe the liver is dumping out glucose when it really doesn't need to be. And so it's rising when we're really don't need that energy. And we can kind of get into what drives high fasting glucose levels. But the other side of that is what's happening when we eat, which is a large portion of the day for many people. Uh, So typically what we're looking at when we're looking at post-meal glucose values is how high does your glucose go at any one point in time? And then how quickly does it return back to kind of baseline values after you've eaten? And that's where a lot of the inflammation can happen is in that meal time. And again, it's really hard to actually capture that picture that visual of what's happening at meals, unless you're getting the continuous data. Uh, Cause you really don't know, you can't catch it typically with a glucose meter, unless you're pricking your finger every 10 minutes, which really don't recommend doing. You could do it, but it's going to lead to some sore fingertips, but um, have seen people do it before. But what happens when we have those big glucose spikes above what is really normal amount is that that's putting a lot of stress on the blood vessels surrounding, um, you know, the tissue. So that endothelium, our blood vessels is having that sharp glucose spike tends to lead to some microvascular damage, which then leads to oxidative stress, um, inflammation. And this is called 
glucotoxicity, essentially. You know, that high glucose spike is glucotoxicity because it's toxic to the system. And that's why if you have a glucose spike every once in a while, the body has processes in place to fix that, right? A little bit of inflammation here and there, some you know, birthday cake and pizza on your birthday leads to a glucose spike. But if it's every once in a while, your body can repair that. But where the problem really comes, if at every single meal you're having a glucose spike and that and that's leading to some inflammation, then it starts to become this flywheel where the amount of inflammation being produced is higher than the rate of which the body can kind of repair it and get it back down to normal levels. So really what we're seeing is if we see these glucose spikes at each mealtime, even if they're still kind of relatively um, in healthy ranges, but kind of pushing to the that max level, which we recommend to stay under 140 milligrams per deciliter for non-diabetics, then that's when we can start to see those inflammation levels um, kind of correlate as well and be higher because we're constantly putting stress on those endothelial tissues And that's also putting stress on the body to release insulin constantly to bring those glucose values back down, which really leads us to that cycle of potential insulin resistance. Uh, So we we have sort of two sides of this. There's the input, um, what I put in my mouth um, and, um, you you know, stress, we're going to get to stress in a second. (laughs) Um, But then there's the um, parts of my body want to suck up this glucose, right? So where are the where does it go? Where are the good places it goes in my body? Because I need it, right? I got to fuel my muscles. I got to like, you know, my brain, all that stuff. Where where does it sit? Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of people um, have a misconception that we want to keep glucose as low as possible or as flat as possible, and that's not true as well. Like you're saying, we need that glucose. So it's not that we want to never have our glucose move. It's just, we want to keep it in these healthy ranges and we don't want to overload those places of where glucose can go, like you're mentioning. So it could be used in a variety of the potential route is that it's going to be fueled immediately towards some, you know, energy producing activity. Sometimes people will see a glucose spike if they're doing really high intensity exercise And this is a perfect example of this. Um, So let's say you're doing um, a HIIT workout or you're doing sprints or even doing really heavy weightlifting session, you'll probably see a glucose spike during that workout. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that your body is demanding some extra glucose to fuel that activity. And so your liver is producing some extra glucose, leasing some into the bloodstream so that it can be used immediately for that activity. So that can be one option is really just fueling the thing that you need in that moment. So um, uh, I want to go to the liver. So um, liver stores uh, glucose. What's the difference between glucose and glycogen? I hear these two words. Yeah. So glycogen is the storage form of glucose. So essentially glycogen is just a bunch of glucose molecules that are fused together. Uh And then that's glycogen. So it's kind of like our storage unit. And then when the body realizes it needs that glucose, it just cleaves each of those glucose molecules off from the glycogen to release it to be used. Um, So my liver store, glucose goes into my liver is stored as glycogen. Um, And then uh, they're my muscles, right? It needs to like, there's a certain amount of, that just is stored there. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah. So we can store glucose as glycogen 
liver and the skeletal muscles, just like you mentioned. And the liver really only has so much storage space for glycogen though, right? We, our livers aren't that big and we don't really want them to get bigger than their, no. so <laughs> yeah, we really, really don't want to do that. So there's only a certain amount that we can store there, but it is a storage space, but our skeletal muscles are a much bigger potential storage space for glycogen because there's just much more of them. And that's another building up our lean body mass. Um, our skeletal muscle is a really, really powerful tool for health overall, many, many benefits, but it also helps glucose regulation and metabolic health because the more skeletal muscle we have, then the more potential storage space we have for that glucose to go. Um, so a lot of people, you know, want to know what are the actionable tips that anybody could do to improve their metabolic health lift weights, build up that lean body mass, use your muscles. So even just kind of moving around, like gentle walking, any sort of movement that stimulates um, some muscle use is going to help kind of pick up some of that glucose and get it out of the, you know, circulation, the blood vessels. Um, exactly. So it's sort of, I, I'm sort of a broken record here because I, I talk all the time about the need for building strength, for building muscle, especially women, yep. <laughs> because it is a glucose sink. That's yeah. that's where all that stuff goes. And the more you've got, the the less chance that you're gonna, you know, be metabolically dysregulated. Yeah, it's like an insurance plan. You know, you the more muscle you have the better protected you are for many things for the metabolic health, you know, getting rid of some of that circulating glucose, but also protecting against falls, the other, so it, our skeletal muscle is our best insurance plan that we can ever purchase. Yeah. There's a, there's a direct correlation and I would say causative, um, relationship between muscle mass and death. Yeah, so, absolutely. I would agree. It's yeah. one of the most important things. I'm the broken record on that message too. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the things that I found, which um, was really relevant, I, I I put a CGM in, it was about a year and a half ago, because I was just sort of curious, like, um, what do I eat? How does it, like, the combination of foods um, affect glucose spikes? And um, that was somewhat informative. Um, but what was really informative was the stress. And so what I found was any kind of stress. So as you said, the gym, obviously. So um, I'm at the gym. Uh, I got to like dump a lot of glucose into my blood. So everything works better because I, I need that energy. But also, um, for instance, in the sauna. So um, what a lot of people don't know is that sauna is a hormetic stressor. And, you know, if I'm in there for 20 minutes, I can just watch like glucose going boom, 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 boom up, which was, I, you know, I was like, oh my God, what's happening to me? But um, as soon as you come out, it just like falls right back down. Um, but, 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 and I found that if I'm like stressed at work or, you know, interpersonal relations, there's something going on. Also glucose goes up, but it would come down. And what, what I found and I, I'd love you to speak a little more about this, is this, I, it suddenly hit me, this is the problem with chronic stress. Chronic stress, my glucose levels would be unnaturally elevated all the time. Um, 
you do you talk to me about this? Are people fine? Am I the only one who sees this? No, yeah, this is one <laughs> of the most common takeaways that we hear from people is the really eye-opening effect of stress and how how much it really truly impacts our glucose levels like you're mentioning. And just like you said, we can kind of think of this as both acute stressors and then chronic stress. There's really a similar mechanism that's happening with both, but it's a difference between, you know, it happens in the sauna and then it goes away because we've removed the stressor versus kind of that hum, low hum of stress happening all the time. With both of them, you know, what's going on is we're releasing that flood of stress hormones, things like cortisol, things like adrenaline that stimulates glucose to be released into the body. And so typically for a lot of acute stressors, this is very normal. This is exactly what we would expect to see, you know, a minor glucose spike and then a return back down. Um, the problem, even with some acute stressors though, is that we don't necessarily need more energy to deal with that stressor. So this, uh, you know, physiological process was designed for, you know, situations like running away from something or fighting something where you do need that spike of energy to fuel that stressful moment. But what we're seeing for a lot of people is they'll have this the biggest glucose spike of their day come from, you know, commuting to work in the morning or that 8 a.m. phone call they have with their boss every Monday or, you know, planning, picking up their kids and planning dinner, you know, whatever the acute stressor is for that individual, we'll see that glucose spike. And it's the same process that's happening, but we don't necessarily need energy to deal with that acute stressor. So, while it's not as um, potentially detrimental as chronic stress, it's still something to pay attention to if it's if it's not a situation where we actually want to be seeing that acute stress response. And many people, they'll see that and then that adds a lot of mind-body awareness to, oh, wow, I am really stressed in that moment. And that allows people right. to kind of implement some strategies in that situation to bring that down. So different things work for different people, breathing techniques, meditation, taking a pause, whatever works for you. And then you can see how, you know, your glucose level improves in those moments. So that can be really powerful, but with chronic stress, like you're saying, um, this is where we really get into trouble is it's not that acute spike, but it's kind of that low hum of stress in the background all the time. And usually how we see this present is that glucose will be elevated in that fasted state specifically. So coming back to what we were talking about earlier, we often look at what's happening overnight and in the morning when you're fasted and then after meals. And if somebody is relatively healthy, you know, their metabolic health looks good overall, but their fasted glucose level is always high. Typically, the number one thing that's happening is chronic stress. You know, it's the first thing we're going to ask about, the first thing we're going to dig into, because that's the culprit 80, 90% of the time in that situation. Because what's happening is driving glucose up a little bit, just that baseline kind of all the time. Um, and so we really have to be able to figure out how to manage some of that chronic stress or else it's just going to keep going up over time, really detrimental to the whole um, I'm, I'm a highly metered human being where <laughs> at least I trackers and measurements I take of myself, but I, I found that, that CGM showing me those glucose spikes at different points, it was amazing to me. Um, 
that I wasn't getting like really high heart rates. I, you know, this is slightly elevated, but you're like, yeah, whatever. But seeing like, you know, this like hockey stick, I was like, whoa, <laughs> really got my attention. Yeah. And that's the powerful part about data in general. Um, so, you know, not even specific to glucose, but wearables that are personalized. So it's not just random data that you're looking at when it's coming from your body, suddenly that's significantly more meaningful. And when it's in real time, so you can connect it to immediately to whatever the behavior was. Those are the types of things that really help people adjust, you know, their routine, adjust their habits, create that feedback cycle of iterating, experimenting, learning really quickly, and then creating habits. Once you learn, oh, okay. So if I do those types of breathing exercises, my morning glucose spike goes down. Now you've created a really sticky habit as part of your routine that people tend to keep a lot longer than if, you know, we just told them you should work on some breathing exercises. And they're like, maybe they're much less likely to be consistent with that behavior than if you see the data yourself. And that's the powerful part of wearables, in my opinion. 100%. Um, I want to move a little more into, um, uh, you know, your wheelhouse, which is um, what I put in my mouth. <laughs> so um, this is something we all have control over. <laughs> um, sometimes we can't control stressful events. They just happen. Um, but, um, you know, hand to mouth, that's, that's up to us. So, um, in terms of, you know, you've seen a lot of data on people. Is there, is, is everybody unique here or are there commonalities that you're seeing? Like I clearly, like if I go and drink what I think is totally evil, like I, I, like, should I go and like have a big gulp glass of like Mountain Dew or something? Um, we all tend to know that's not such a great idea. It's a terrible, and don't even like, this is just like, a, I, I think that thing should just be banned. I think it's just evil. Yeah, they even allow people to drink that. Have them be turpentine, a better outcome. Um, yeah. And to <laughs> make matters worse, like what I was really pushing for when I worked in the hospital was to remove sodas from trays. Oh so my that, God. Yeah. yeah. So, At the hospital. It, oh, it shouldn't be illegal oh, anywhere. Let's start there. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I had a, a weird autoimmune thing and mm-hmm. um, I was spent the better part of a year in a hospital and like the way they like what they feed you and the way they don't let you sleep and like all this so stuff. It's like, yeah, I just want to say the guy's like, we're, <laughs> can we talk about I'm never going to get better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to get better. Get me out of here so I can get healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but um, let's talk a little bit about sort of um, what are the common, I mean, the tell me some commonalities you're finding. Yeah, yeah. And, and to answer your initial question, there are both commonalities and there are a lot of differences between. So it's it's yes to both where there's certainly things that we see kind of across the board. But the amount of variability between individuals was also one of our biggest surprises when we started to just work with a lot of individuals was really, truly how unique we all are. But at the same time, we all know that chugging that giant big gulp is going to lead to a big glucose spike. So there are commonalities. And that's why um, with nutrition specifically, the framework we try to teach people, our clients, is master the basics, you know, understand the fundamentals that everyone should be doing, 
and then be malleable and empirical, you know, be willing to be flexible in your approach based off of the, your own personalized data, because we all are pretty unique. And we're also going to change. Our needs are going to change based off of our current life situation or what's going on, or, you know, how much we're able to exercise our age our gender. Um, but with commonalities, any form of liquid sugar is probably the worst thing you could do. The most obvious example are things like soda, but this is also things like Gatorade or juice or orange juice, orange oh, juice, yeah, don't or do it. oat milk, um, like all of those things, <laughs> sweetened plant milks, all of those things are liquid sugar. Yeah. And it's about the worst thing I think that you could do for your glucose levels is a liquid form of sugar. So really just completely removing that if you're doing it. Um, is a very easy, low-hanging fruit that I promise uh, will be helpful for everybody. <laughs> Similarly, is really thinking about the level of processing that the carbohydrates you're consuming have gone through. So in a similar lens of, you know, if we put it in liquid form, that's about as processed as we can get. We've digested it essentially completely. Um, but if you think about oats as an example, we have steel-cut oats, which are about as unprocessed as we can get. Then we have rolled oats and then we have instant oats. And the difference between those with average glucose responses is significant. It's like they're three completely different foods. So really trying to get to the most unprocessed version of things is a great way to kind of mitigate some of those dramatic glucose responses. Um, another universal truth is always eat your protein before your carbohydrates. This really matters. And it's helpful, not just for blunting that glucose response, which will reduce inflammation, um, reduce feelings of cravings and hanger and energy swings, but it's helpful having satiety, making sure we're getting enough protein and prioritizing that macronutrient. So it's always kind of a win-win to think about protein first before anything else. So Let's say you have a plate of broccoli, chicken, and rice. Eating even just a few bites of the chicken before you start eating the rice makes a very significant impact. So small, small little hack like that can really change how people's glucose looks. I, I'm curious. I'm really curious about this um, because I, I found this to be true that um, I, I get really, I eat an enormous amount of food. Um, and, I, I <laughs> and I get like really hungry. And if I eat like a couple bites of some protein, like not, a, I mean, just, we're just talking a couple of bites. There's, I'm convinced there's some sort of signaling that's going on to my brain that says like, everything's cool. You can chill out. And, and this protein hasn't entered. It hasn't been, it's going to be like an hour before it digests. What? Why does my brain think everything's okay then? Yeah, I'm unsure of the actual mechanisms happening there, but I do know it's been studied over and over that protein by far is the satiating macronutrient. So we know, you know, across the board from studies, and we, I also know working with clients that this is true on an individual level for this is just like yeah, an effect that everyone sees eat some protein and you're not only satiated, but it, again, it helps with blunting that glucose response. Um, so it improves things that you can't feel as much either like our metabolic health or kind of what's happening behind the scenes. Um, so really, really prioritizing protein. And again, 
going back to women that not as likely to strength train. And also usually the um, population I'm working with that tend to under eat protein, especially. Mm -hmm. So really making that top of mind at every meal can make a big difference. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, the, so one of the other things I noticed from the CGM is if I, uh, so say I'm like an empty stomach, I have an orange. I'm, you know, it's not going to go Mountain Dew crazy, but it's definitely going to go up. But if I eat my meal and then I have the same orange, there's like zero effect, doesn't do anything. But why is that? Yeah. So similarly to kind of making sure you have some of that protein before your carbohydrates, eating some food helps to slow down the digestion. So when we're on a completely empty stomach and we're just putting in kind of a, a pure carbohydrate source, there's really nothing else in our system to uh, slow down that digestion. So it leads to that sharp glucose spike because we're processing it right away. And that's where if we have a little bit of protein first, it kind of helps to slow that down. Um, everything mixes together a little bit more, so to speak, and that blunts that dramatic response. And so that's why for a lot of people who are doing more fasting as well, one of the universal truths we we give around there is to be really, really mindful of how you break your fast. So this could be true for just breaking a daily fast, you know, what you're eating in the morning, first thing you're putting in your mouth, but also the longer the fast, the more you really need to be mindful about what you're putting in your body to kind of ease your way back into digestion. And another thing, another universal truth related to this is the time of day can also really impact your glucose response. So across the board, what we tend to see is that most people um, don't tolerate meals or process that glucose load as well later in the day. Um, so just like things like melatonin, we know works on a circadian rhythm, our insulin sensitivity and insulin responses also work on a circadian rhythm. So if we're eating really late at night, our body tends to not process it as well as in the middle of the day, we're really primed to be metabolizing food and processing that glucose load. So we see this issue really, um, sharply and, and anybody who works shift work. So, you know, nurses, physicians, anyone who's working throughout the night, kind of having large meals at 2am, 3am, 4am, even if they're awake during that time and their body is kind of used to that, their metabolic system, their circadian rhythm attached to that is not primed to be metabolizing that food as well at that hour. So really being mindful about trying to kind of eat your meals earlier in the day and avoid food before bed can be really helpful too. We had um, Dr. Sachin Panda on about three weeks ago, um, Mr. Circadian Rhythm, and he uh, he told me why this was. I asked him, and he said melatonin um, shuts down your pancreas's insulin production, which I had no idea. And he said yeah. that's that's why, like you know, two two or three hours before you go to sleep, you're not going to be able to like manage it. Um, and then he said in the morning, it takes about an hour. Um, between when you wake up and the melatonin in your body has decreased enough that your pancreas will work again. Um, yeah, I had no so, idea. That was yeah, amazing. melatonin and insulin work kind of like in the similar receptors, so they'll they'll fight for each other's you know receptors there. 
And that makes sense if you think about it through the lens that when melatonin is high, it's usually when we shouldn't need insulin as much because we shouldn't need to be eating while we're sleeping. Um, This is where we've actually seen quite a dramatic effect when people are taking melatonin supplementation, Mm. especially uh, higher doses. So you can get some pretty crazy doses of melatonin out there. Um, Really, really, really do not recommend it where you're creating an extremely high level of melatonin in your body that is way beyond, you know, what we would ever produce naturally. And so it tends to stay in circulation then not just while you're sleeping, but potentially sometimes 18, 24 hours later. So if we know that they're, they're working against each other, melatonin and insulin, and if you're taking these high levels of melatonin supplementation, you could be still seeing that insulin desensitizing effect at 3 PM the next day. Um, so being really, really mindful, if you are using any melatonin supplementation of how you're using it, what dose you're using it, I really recommend just like one milligram. If you're trying to reset your circadian rhythm, if you've been like traveling or you're really out of sync and taking it at like 7 PM so that you have enough time to kind of get it out of your system. Um, and then only doing it randomly if needed, not consistently. Like anything more than a half of a milligram. And I'm like drunk the next day. I just, yep. I, it's and some people I, take 10, work. 15 milligrams. Um, I, I yeah. know, I know people like that. Way I just high. like, wow. Okay. Good yeah. luck with we'll that. see, we'll see the effect in people's glucose levels when, when that happens. Wow. Um, okay. So you, um, you haven't seen my CGM data. You don't know anything about me. Um, but I tend to be kind of sporty. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm, I'm hungry. I mean, some people go to the gym fasted. I can't do that. Like I need, I need fuel. So, um, I'm just going to make you my nutritionist for a moment. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what do I eat when I get up in the morning? You want recommendations? Yeah. Bring it on. What you got? Yeah. So typically if you're going to, what kind of workout are you doing then in, in the morning? Uh, my workouts are about an hour to an hour and a half. Um, there'll be, um, it's no messing around. <laughs> um, requires a lot of energy. Yeah. Well, I usually recommend if you're working out in the morning and you need some fuel beforehand, a lot of people do and can actually make your glucose levels better overall. So we don't always have to be fasted all the time. We don't have to do faster workouts in order to have good metabolic health. Um, so some protein and carbohydrates combined and usually a little bit easier to digest. So you're not sitting there metabolizing a bunch of food while you're trying to work out. You don't want to feel sluggish either. So maybe two hard boiled eggs and a piece of fruit or something like, um, Greek yogurt with some berries, depending on if you tolerate dairy or not. So really pairing a little bit of protein with some carbohydrates and if possible, eating that protein first. Awesome. I'm going to give it a try. Um, I'm, I'm into the, uh, I'm into chia seeds lately. Um, so they're delicious and they're fun. Yeah. You could do the chia (laughs) seed pudding where you're doing it with some, you know, unsweetened beverage of your choice, some nuts and berries. Um, Hey, speaking of beverage, what's the effect of the interrelationship between caffeine and glucose levels? Yeah, that's a great question. This is one of those areas where we see people have a wide variety of responses. So it seems to be really dependent on probably 
your genetics um, related to caffeine metabolism intolerance, where some people will drink caffeine and their glucose level levels are stable. They feel really good. And there seems to be no effect at all. And those are people who metabolize caffeine pretty well. Um, and then people where they'll have one cup of coffee on an empty stomach in the morning and their glucose spikes and they feel jittery and they feel anxious and they're wondering what's going on. And most likely they're having a stress response to that caffeine and it's showing up as a little glucose spike. So for those individuals, if they still want to have coffee, we tend to recommend they eat a little bit of food first, drink lots of water first, and then have that cup of coffee. And then we usually see that effect effect be mitigated. And then that type of person also probably needs to be really mindful of how much caffeine they're consuming throughout the day. Usually one glass is typically um, the maximum if you're somebody who's really sensitive where it might not need to be as stringent if you're somebody who's not seeing that effect. Um, how durable are the uh, one's sort of glucose sensitivities to different foods? Do these, um, do you recommend that people check yearly, quarterly? I'm, I'm not really into wearing a CGM the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, what should I do? <laughs> Yeah. I recommend first there's like kind of a learning stage. If it's the first time you're ever checking your glucose, especially um, with a CGM, it typically one to three months of fairly consistent wearing to learn all the different responses and try different things and figure out what routine works best for you. And then from there, depending on like, you know, if you're an overall healthy person, you're just there to learn and, and kind of optimize. So it would start there and then maybe wear one once, once every six to 12 months. So once or twice a year and they're 14 days. And that's usually enough time to kind of make sure however your routine has adjusted, your health has changed, that things still look good. Kind of a spot check, like you would do almost the same frequency as what you would do labs is similar. Hmm. Um. I had, uh, I, I wore mine for a month and, um, you'll find this amusing. I'm on like day two or three. I've got this thing plugged in my arm. I'm asleep and there's like an alarm in you cause it's designed for diabetics. So there's like an alarm in my phone. If you know, something goes too high or too low and, um, I don't hear it cause I'm asleep. My wife hears it and the phone is blinking bright red, like emergency, emergency. And the CGM was reading that my blood sugar was like 35 or something. Like I should be dead. Um, like get him to the high. And it was like immediate hospital. And, I, and I'm, you know, she went over and she's like, Oh, he seemed to be breathing. He, <laughs> he seems okay. And so this happened like a few nights in a row. And our solution was just put a pillow over the phone. I'm fine. Um, and what we came to understand was that sometimes I sleep on my side and if I sleep on the side with the CGM, it, I don't know, makes it not function the way it should. Um, so for all of you out there, if this happens, you're not dying. Yeah. Yeah. Those <laughs> alarms are very irritating. Uh, the, the sensors we use don't have those alarms because there's disruptive to your sleep that is exactly. kind of counterproductive to the health <laughs> progress we're trying to make. Uh, but yeah, if you do put pressure directly on it, it's almost kind of like reducing the blood flow to that area. Looks like glucose is really low. Then you'll get these really annoying alarms and it is not pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> I called one. I have a lot of doctors in my life and I, I called one of them who's a friend in the morning and I said, um, I've got this level and, and she was just like, oh my God, 
Like, do you still <laughs> have feeling in your fingers? Below Are you? <laughs> would be not if your glucose is actually below fifty. That's kind of the threshold of the danger zone. If it's true, truly <laughs> yeah. below fifty. Um, it wasn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> thankfully. So, um, super interesting. Um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, Kara, what what do they do? Yeah. So the best way to kind of follow what's going on, um, information about metabolic health, learning glucose is, uh, our Instagram or Facebook, Twitter, Nutrisense IO. That's sort of where I'm putting out any, you know, research studies that I'm looking at or interesting trends we're seeing in our clients. So that's the best place to follow along. There's also a blog on the site, Nutrisense IO blog and newsletter where posting all the different things we're learning and thinking about and writing a bunch of content there. And I, I just want to reiterate, like people might think like, oh, like blood sugar, whatever. Um, well, this is why, whatever. Um, Alzheimer's, dementia, cancer, heart disease, arthritis, all the sort of bad stuff you can think about. Um, there is a strong causal correlation with blood sugar. So um, that's why you want to pay attention to this. Yeah, it's not just diabetes like people no. think. It's it's really you know, metabolic health is that core foundation of which everything else is affected. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on the show, Kara. Um, great information. I'm a big fan of the CGM. Um, I think it's super interesting. So, um, and you know, um, as I think I mentioned during the show, um, it doesn't hurt. So anyway, it's, if it, if you're curious, could be something for you to check out. We're going to get with Just Try This after a quick word from our sponsor. The second sponsor of today's show is Element, spelled L-M-N-T. Element is an electrolyte drink that contains the exact ratios of the electrolytes sodium, magnesium, and potassium to optimize our cellular functioning for mental and physical performance. Most of us understand that, you know, we need to stay hydrated. But what a lot of people don't realize is just pounding water isn't going to cut it. In order for our cells to function properly, they need sodium, potassium, and magnesium in the right doses. Element has perfected the balance. Now, of course, people with prehypertension or hypertension need to be careful about their sodium intake. But for most of us who are mindful about eating clean, unprocessed food most of the time, we may not be getting enough sodium, potassium, or magnesium. That's why I drink a packet of Element each day. If you'd like to try Element, Go to drinkelement.com slash ageist, that's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash ageist, and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Let me know what your favorite flavor is. I'm, I'm into citrus salt. What's yours? This week on Just Try This, my suggestion is that we avail ourselves to all these breath meditation apps that seem to be out there. I'm, I actually started wearing an Apple Watch, and there's a little... I, I think maybe people don't know about this, but there's like a little app on the watch. It's like this light blue circle with a lot of little squiggly lines on it. It's a little breath thing. They, um, Whoop has one attached to it now. But you can, you know, if you just type into YouTube uh, three-minute breath work, just try it. I've been doing it at about three in the afternoon. I take a break from my desk. I go and I sit in a soft chair and I just put one hand on my belly, another hand on my heart, and I do like three minutes of breath work and I feel better. And I, now that I've done it all week, I look forward to it, you know, three o'clock. Oh boy, I get to do my breath work. Um, so check that out. doesn't cost anything. It's easy, lowers um, your blood pressure, lowers your cortisol, and you'll be a happy person. So just try this three minutes of breathing every afternoon.
Thanks for joining us on the show this week. I really value your attention. I value your time. If you have any suggestions, if you would like to contact me directly, david at superage.com, hit me up. And also, you have the opportunity to leave us up to a five-star review. Have you done that yet? Because we would really appreciate that. You can leave a comment. Those are great. And the only way we grow is if people like you tell other people out there about the Super Age podcast. Um, so take a moment, maybe do that. It would really help us out. Next week, we got another great one. Until then, breathe a little bit and we'll see you then. Take care. Bye now. <laughs>